Smarties, today we welcome audiologist Dr. B. Braun to the podcast. In this episode, which is so full of dynamic information that blew our minds, we talk about central auditory evaluations, how foundational auditory processing is, and why you want to see a pediatrician versus an audiologist and where to go when. She also digs into the genetic connection. Steph shares a little bit about her personal relationship with auditory processing as well. But there is so much in this episode that we did not know. And we're so excited to share Dr. Braun with our audience today. If you are not a part of our Patreon community, what are you waiting for? Patreon is our $5 a month subscription where you can hear extended conversation and get exclusive content that is only available on Patreon. And Steph and Dr. Braun have a lovely extended conversation today that I'm sure you guys are going to want to hear more from her. So go follow us and support the work that we're doing on Patreon. The link for that is in the show notes, but I'll also share it here. It's www.patreon.com slash learn smarter podcast. Thank you so much for those of you who are already in that community and supporting the work that we do. It means so much to both of us and let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The educational therapy podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 145 of Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are super excited to have Dr. Braun with us, who is an audiologist in Los Angeles. Welcome. Hello. How are you? Yay. So happy to have you here. I'm excited to be here. We've wanted this episode for a long time. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise with our audience. We already know... Just from the off-air conversation, Steph has questions. I have questions. And so (laughs) we're just excited to have you here. Great. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm excited to answer all your questions. Yay. So first and foremost, will you tell our audience who you are and what you do? Sure. I am an audiologist and specifically I'm also an educational audiologist. So I have my credential in educational audiology. Hmm. So in addition to doing the, the normal audiology things, which is, you know, testing, hearing, I specialize in central auditory processing evaluations. And that really is about what happens when sound leaves the ears and then traverses up the auditory pathways to finally get processed as language. So this is really a bigger piece of the brain, if you will. And it really does look at educational implications, listening problems, difficulties, just in general conversation that kids can have. And it's not related to their hearing because the hearing is normal. It's really a problem in the pathways after the sound leaves the ears. (laughs) Full disclosure, everyone. I have suspected for a very long time, but now it is confirmed that... I have some auditory processing difficulties. (laughs) So I relate to this very much. And I'm ready to learn, too, a little bit more about what's going on in my own brain. And that educational piece, you know, here I'm an adult. It's not just kids. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the big thing. And it's also tends to be very genetic. So it's very common that if I'm seeing a child, I also test adults, but as I'm seeing a child and I'm explaining what's going on, the parent 
will share that they have the same exact problems. So it's very, very common to see it in adults as well. If I'm seeing a child, I also test adults, but as I'm seeing a child and I'm explaining what's going on, the parent will share that they have the same exact problems. So it's very, very common to see it in adults as well. Steph, do you notice that in your family? I don't know. I haven't really honestly paid attention. Well, we'll have an answer to that. But now I'm going to. I know. (laughs) Yeah. As you go through this process, you start to figure out ways to adjust, right? Mm -hmm. So you realize, oh, I don't learn that way, or that's a really bad environment. So you just start to kind of do workarounds as you get older. And so it's not uncommon to see people that are very successful, but they really have to have an assistant, you know, because they can't handle some of the pieces of the puzzle, if you will, or they work in environments that are very quiet and don't have a lot of competing issues going on. So you just do workarounds, you know, but it's not uncommon to see adults who don't like to read. And part of that reading issue is related to the auditory processing. So it really can follow you into adulthood. That's absolutely for sure. Can you go into that a little bit? Because I don't know, I was aware that an auditory processing issue can affect reading in that way. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh yeah, for sure. So auditory processing is actually an umbrella and under that umbrella are several subtypes. So the testing is really designed to see one, is there a problem? And then if there is a problem, where along the auditory pathways is that breakdown occurring? So as an example, when the problem is in the left side of the brain, so left side of the brain is where we process sound and then where we process language. And so prior to going into the language centers, we have what's called the auditory auditory cortex. Basically, it's almost like a pizza, different slices that do different things. And for some individuals with an auditory processing disorder, parts of that pizza are weak. And so an example is they may have a very difficult time putting sounds together, blending sounds to be able to say a word. So I give them a test where they hear something like, you know, simplistically, ah, and then they say cat, and then it gets more complex. When there's a problem in that area, that directly translates into reading and spelling problems. And that can be how they put the sound with the symbol on the page and then how they're able to hold those sounds and then put those sounds together to say the word. Also a bit of a red flag for dyslexia because once again, dyslexia being an umbrella, there's a very small group that fall under that umbrella that have this sound-based issue related to their dyslexia. So they do tend to go hand in hand. So that's really specifically targeted to what we call auditory decoding that impacts the reading and the spelling. The other issue that can happen is you can have some really big problems with reading comprehension. And the reason that is, is that's actually a problem area in the bridge that connects the right side of the brain with the left side of the brain. So the left side of the brain is language. The right side of the brain is where we see pictures and where we hear music. So there's this constant back and forth happening on this bridge. It's called the corpus callosum. So if I say something very simple to you, like, oh, look at that purple butterfly with yellow spots, you process the language on the left, but then you create a picture of that butterfly on the right side of your your brain. (laughs) Your butterflies look different than my butterfly. I'm reading something. Now, because I'm reading a book, I now am creating this ongoing movie in the right side of my brain. I'm getting the pictures. But now I go see the actual movie looks totally different than the pictures that I've created in my brain. 
The opposite is true though as well. So I could see something visually and if I want to describe it, it goes the other way. So I see the visual portion on the right side, I send it over and I now describe it to you. So if I say to you, tell me about your last vacation, if we can all remember when that was anymore, we see that on the right side of our brain and then we start to send it over and we start to tell about our vacation. So now we go back to the language side and be able to process that. So it's this constant back and forth that happens between the right side and the left side. So when kids have this particular subtype or adults, this really impacts listening comprehension, reading comprehension, following multi-step directions the ability to retell something in a sequential, cohesive manner. It totally impacts writing as well. And what you'll see often is the writing will just have a lot of details, but there's not a lot of cohesion or sequential writing that can happen. So that really impacts writing and reading comprehension as well. So what I want to do is I want to take a step back. Steph and I often will talk about the journey that parents have been through to get to educational therapy. And, you know, we've been doing this a long time, so we see trends. You've been doing this a while. So I'm curious, what has sort of happened in the parenting journey that has led parents to come and seek out an assessment from you? And I'm particularly interested in like the signals or the things that might be happening in childhood or in school or the warning signs. You know, it is very individualized. Some parents will tell me they knew when they were really young. One of the common challenges for younger kids, preschool aged, is they don't love the nursery rhymes. You know, they don't have that rhythm kind of thing that a lot of the preschoolers will do. You know, they don't enjoy them. And that's because they have a hard time hearing the tonal changes or the temporal pieces to those nursery rhymes. They have a hard time making those connections. Following multi-step directions, you know, really big thing when kids are younger, for sure. That's always the one thing is like, you know, I have to repeat myself over and over (laughs) again. And he heard me. I know he heard me, but he went and did something totally different, you know, than what I had asked him to do. So those are kind of the early signs. Then once you get into school, that's the tricky part because this can have a relationship with IQ as well, right? So when you have a really bright child, they fly under the radar because they are so bright. But what can happen, so in those early grades, they're going to do okay, but then they get into third grade, which is that pivotal year, and all of a sudden you just start to see these big problems. And that can be really illuminating, you know, because you're like, oh, what's going on? He's been doing so good. And now all of a sudden, you know, those challenges are right there. The other thing, though, is those kids who, you know, maybe have generalized average IQ and IQ is, of course, big broad spectrum as well. There's so many pieces of that. Even in kindergarten, you can start to see those difficulties. You know, they just aren't able to follow instructions. The teachers have to repeat. The child isn't able to do the group things. There's just a lot going on there. So academically, you typically do see that, you know, starting anywhere from kindergarten to third grade. Every once in a while, though, I will see kids, you know, whether they're twice exceptional or not, but highly gifted, I mean, really up there, and they do great, and then they get into high school, and their entire world falls apart, and that's just because the demands are great, and they just can't do what is expected of them, you know, with six classes and all the crazy intensive academics that are required of them, and then we have a big problem because now there's this whole secondary 
overlay of emotional behavioral problems that can occur with that. So it really runs the gamut. So all of that to say, it just really depends on the child. But typically speaking, you know, you're going to see some of those more difficulties related to the auditory information as well. And late readers. Yes, not uncommon. Although, let me share, Stephanie, this has been so fascinating, and I don't read this in the literature a lot, but I 100% see it. Some kids learn how to read very young. And so it's always a surprise because what happens is you think, oh, they taught themselves how to read or they're great readers, but they've memorized all the words because the right side of the brain, which is our visual side, very, very strong. And they've just memorized all of the words, but they may have some other difficulties. So then I test them and they cannot blend sounds. Their sound blending is terrible. And so I say to the parent, you know, this is typically a child that you're going to see some reading and spelling problems in. And they say, no, they're fantastic readers. And then I step back and I go, I used to go, is there something wrong with my test? Did something go wrong? (laughs) But now I know. "Mm -mm." So I say to them, go ahead, pick a book that's maybe a little bit above their grade level and see what they do when they come across words they don't know. Are they able to sound those words out? I always, 100% of the time, get a call back or an email from the parent going, he can't sound out words. He doesn't know how to sound out a word he's not familiar with. And that's because they've basically memorized all the words up to that point. So this is me. Uh-huh. Because they told my parents I forgot how to read first to second grade, like over the summer. But I think I never really knew how to read. And I think I memorized it all. Yep. And then I had to get, you know, intense intervention And I caught up quickly, but I couldn't read at second grade. And I'd been fooling everybody. Right. Including myself. I thought I could read, but I couldn't. And it's lucky that they caught that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because some kids will just fly by because it's not as apparent. But at some point, you can't memorize every word in in the language. No, yeah, it caught up to me. Yeah. And are you a good reader now? Yeah, I did. I caught up. You're a good reader now, and you'll also listen to audiobooks now. I've learned how to compensate. There's times where I hear things and I feel my body too slow to react. Mm -hmm. It's an auditory sound. Like if my dog is barking, I know I should get moving to go tell him to stop, but I'm slow. Mm. There's these few things here and there that I notice that I'm like, why can't I process it faster? It's very frustrating, actually. Interesting. And you're deeply aware of it too. I'm very deeply aware of it. Yes. Yeah. More than most people probably. (laughs) I think Steph has like a hypersensitivity to her body. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And in your line of work, you also have to probably be very aware of it as well, you know, because you've got to make sure that you're sharing your knowledge and understanding how to do that. And that probably takes a lot of energy. One of the big things that happens with Anybody who has an auditory processing disorder is what we call auditory fatigue or auditory overload. And that just is you are listening so much harder than your peers, and especially for children in a classroom. And by the end of the day, wiped out, exhausted, just can't handle it anymore. Or you're in those environments maybe where you're really sensitive and your whole body just becomes overloaded and fatigued by it. I wonder if that's the reason why I didn't like teaching in the classroom. I bet that is a big part of it because the other aspects of it, 
I think you really would have enjoyed had that input not been so aggressive for you. Mm-hmm. Because it was loud. And when you were talking about like early childhood and my background was I taught preschool for many, many years. I was teaching pre-K. And as you were talking and sort of describing the kids who weren't really into nursery rhymes or rhyming, I'm going back to a couple of kids in my mind who would just look at me with a blank stare. But I made their parents aware in that moment because it wasn't typical of that age to not be able to rhyme cat and hat. Right. Absolutely. Well, I think we should go to the pediatrician versus audiologist because this is something that I think is a big misconception and misunderstanding. We talked about it on our podcast when we talked about visual. The visual processing disorder. Thank you. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you tell a parent, hey, I think there's like a disconnect between the eyes and the brain. And they're like, but they have perfect vision. Right. And likewise, this happens when you talk to them about sound entering and they get their hearing checked every year. It's fine. So can you talk a little bit about what makes you specialize? What makes you different? So the where to go when is very clear. Of course, you want to have a regular hearing test done for your child routinely because you don't want the problem to be that they can't hear at the ear level because that's a whole different situation because if that's the case, do we have chronic ear infections? Do we have middle ear fluid? Do we have an actual hearing loss that needs intervention? So absolutely, you want to go to the pediatrician for that. And it's confusing to parents and the public in general. So just like you said, you go and say, oh yeah, her hearing's absolutely fine. She doesn't have a problem with how she hears. But once again, this is not about how we hear at the ear level. This is what happens when that sound leaves the ears and then goes up those pathways. So this is really way more intensive. I mean, I do a, a very thorough hearing evaluation on the day of as well. I also check the eardrums, make sure everything's healthy. But the actual auditory processing is, you know, this is a two-hour tests that really delves into how that information is being processed. That sounds exhausting for my brain. (laughs) I give a lot of breaks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do it, Stephanie. (laughs) Okay, so the pediatrician is checking the eyes, checking the ears, doing all the base level things. Correct. That's the pizza dough for your pizza right there. Mm -hmm. But we're checking on the cheese and the toppings, right? So... There's these common things that come up, but like you said, it's very individualized. And for instance, I have a client, when I say something or ask him a question, he repeats everything I say. Then he answers the question. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked his parents about it and they hadn't really noticed, but he does it every time. Mm -hmm. And that's something that definitely is going on with his auditory processing Yep. He's using that strategy one. It's actually quite smart if you think about it, although cumbersome for language. Yeah. But what he's doing is he's giving himself extra time. Mm-hmm. He's re-auditorizing it. So he's actually getting a check-in that he got the information the correct way. But by re-auditorizing it, he's also giving that information to himself again. So it's as if he's hearing it again, he's telling you to get confirmation, plus he's giving himself that extra five, 10 seconds to come up with the correct answer. So it's quite brilliant, but we can't get through life that way. That's got to be exhausting for him. Yeah, absolutely. That's something. Okay. And you said it was genetic, which I think is fascinating, but also what are some ways or 
reasons that it might show up and it not be genetic? So a couple risk factors. Probably the biggest one is chronic ear infections, middle ear fluid as well. So, you know, you can get an ear infection and what can happen is you go through these stages of fluid that develop, right? So let's say you get the antibiotics, but you still have fluid behind the ears or you don't get the antibiotics, even worse. And of course, these days, antibiotics used to be prescribed a lot more. Now they're less. So you tend to have fluid that will go from clear, watery, causing minimal hearing loss to starting to get a little thicker and gooier to all the way to be like glue behind the ear. And so that really causes your hearing to fluctuate. And so especially when children are younger and they're learning the sounds and they're learning the language, that process can really impact more specifically that pizza on the left side of the brain, the auditory cortex. And it really can cause some changes that can happen that will impact how they hear things in the future. So certainly that's a big factor. And sometimes parents will say, well, no, they didn't really have a lot of ear infections. But as you go through the history, you say, okay, well, maybe the fluid was there and it wasn't necessarily always the infection. The other piece, jaundice, is a very big risk factor as well. Now, typically, though, this jaundice is more intensive. I mean, lots of Billy Light treatment and or transfusion, which is, you know, a bigger deal, of course. Prematurity also a big risk factor. Concussions, also a big risk factor, especially for adults, very common. Um, There's a lot of literature now with a lot of the war vets having come back with TBIs and seeing post-concussion auditory processing difficulties. And then the other one that I don't see a lot in the literature, but I do tend to see children who've been adopted. Hmm. On my end, I tend to see a higher end of auditory processing as well. What about twins? I don't really see that as an issue. I've seen certainly a lot of twins. Sometimes I see them both. And sometimes I'm just seeing the one and then the other child doesn't have any issues at all. So I don't necessarily think it can always go hand in hand. And what about kids who are not growing at the rate that they should be and they're on growth hormone? That's a good question. I would say that there probably is a higher risk factor. I have seen probably a couple dozen of those kiddos, maybe more. I've never thought about that as being a connection, but that sort of makes sense. You know, parts of our brain that develop, if you've got the growth issues, that could certainly impact those auditory pathways as well. So that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, that's fascinating. That would be a really interesting research area to look at because it makes absolute sense. And, you know, those auditory pathways depends on where they are in the brain, but the pathways in that bridge of the corpus callosum, they're very heavily myelinated, like with a white fatty substance. So it would not be uncommon to see that there could be some delays in that maturation of the myelin as well. For our audience who doesn't know what myelin is, can you define it for our audience? Yeah, yeah. It's it's basically a white fatty substance that covers those pathways. It's almost like insulation. And so when you have this nice myelin on those pathways, it just allows transmission of information to get across more efficiently and effectively. So it's really just like a super highway, if you will, so that that information can just zoom across. I'm sorry for all the analogies, but it, to me, it feels like cooking spray. Mm. Mm, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so that it, you know, can cook nicely and come off and uh, does what it's supposed to do. Anyway, there you go. 
And it would be fascinating to also look at like birth weight. Mm-hmm. Yes. That kind of thing to see, do we have one twin that was maybe lower birth weight? And then that could be an impact. That would just be fascinating research. Yeah. So now that we've put this all out there, here are some things to look for. Now, what do we do about it? Ah, great question. Let me go back to say I've been doing auditory processing testing for about 23 years, solely specializing it now for the last, well, I had my private practice for 15, but probably, you know, four where I've just solely been doing auditory processing and nothing else. And it used to be when I first started, all you could do was say, you've got the diagnosis, here you go. Maybe we put hearing assistive technology, you know, everybody used to call it an FM system. So maybe you just put them in the front of the class, you slap an FM system on them and that's it. That's all we could do for you. Maybe some make some accommodations in the classroom. There have always been auditory training types of activities, but they've typically been done at a university. You have to live close by. They're usually just done in the summer. However, about, I don't know, maybe seven-ish years ago, more commercially available auditory trainings have become available. It is the single most exciting thing that's happened in my career because Without a doubt, it makes the biggest, biggest difference in these adults as well. But when I can do this kinds of training with younger children, it is mind blowing because those auditory pathways, I go back to kind of like a freeway analogy. There's just like traffic on those lanes right now. And so the auditory training is really designed to strengthen the neural connections on those lanes that are already there. So we're going to clear the traffic off those freeway lanes. And especially when you're younger, we make new lanes based on neuroplasticity. So now we're building a wider freeway. We're clearing the traffic off of the freeway. And those kids just make the most amazing improvement. It's really, really exciting and rewarding. And I'll have, you know, educational therapists, speech language pathologists, they'll call and they'll be like, what has happened? I don't understand the improvement. Parents just, you know, blown away by it. I mean, it's really exciting. It's really exciting. So it depends on on the subtype of auditory processing and the severity, but everything's done at home. Typically, they're just auditory training listening programs. And usually they're pretty easy to use. They're not fun. I'm not going to, you know, it's like vision therapy, right? You know, it's not fun fun, but it does the same exact thing. It's not a muscle, but it's like a muscle. We're exercising, we're strengthening the muscle. So just like vision therapy, you get through it, but we're strengthening those pathways. Steph is like, where can I sign up? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) When you do strengthen the pathways, what does that look like? It's not a cure-all. It's improvement, but what does that really look like? This is probably me being Pollyanna-ish as well, but (laughs) when kids are younger, my goal is to get them 100% in the normal range. Not that they have 100% scores, but my goal, if the scores are in that reasonable range, is let's do this. We can absolutely get your scores into the normal range and it sticks And one of the things that I share with parents is that we're going to do this. We're going to clear the traffic. We're going to build our freeway, but we still have to teach him how to drive. Yeah. So that's where the educational, you know, interventions are so important. It's not just that the auditory training is going to magically help them to read better or have better comprehension or become better writers. Now we need to get the educational piece involved, or we're already doing the educational piece, hopefully, as we're doing all of the auditory training at the same time. So if the child is young enough, the goal from my perspective is 
we're good to go. This is not going to be a problem for you as an adult. We're going to take care of this issue now. And young enough means how old? Well, in my perfect world, I would love to see every five-year-old on the planet. Okay. But in my other perfect world, I would love to see every five-year-old get some simple screening done in TK or K and then start there. Because I'm telling you something, we would just have a whole different level of readers and and learners if we could do that. But typically, like if you're going through a school district or something, most districts will refer or test at age seven. Anything really before the age of 12 is pretty, pretty manageable and, and able to make some really big changes. After the age of 12, we get this big burst of myelin that occurs back on that bridge. And that usually occurs like between 12 and 13. Once that happens, you can absolutely still make changes on the brain. I'm not saying that you can't, but it's just harder because you're older, that myelin is already there and the changes just don't come across quite as quickly. You also don't get that wow factor. So the changes are more subtle. So as an example, you know, as a 13 year old, you already are typically reading, right? So if those pathways that are connected to the sound blending are strengthened, that's amazing, but you're not typically going to go back to that foundational level of phonics now and reteach somebody how to read because they're already reading at whatever level they're capable of reading. So it's still impactful and you can still make changes. It just takes more work. Okay. So as an adult, you still can make some major changes. Absolutely. Okay. I'm thinking about when I took that test and it was exhausting for me. And I'm sure, you know, the kids being in the classroom and all of that, if we can catch it and if you are sitting here listening and you think, oh, this sounds like maybe it could be my kid or it was me. I wonder if it's in my kid. The sooner the better, clearly. Yes. For sure. And speaking to that, one of my recommendations is to allow breaks during the day for the kids, you know, even if that means letting them go over to the reading corner with the beanbag, put on some headphones that are, you know, just quiet things out and just to let them chill for a bit. Because these are the poor kiddos. And, and much like you've described too, Stephanie, is the end of the day, they hold it together, right? They do what they need to do. They get in the car and it's just meltdown, you know, or yeah. poor mom and dad are trying to get them to do the schoolwork, you know, at the end of the day. And they're just, it's done. They're done. They're fried. They can't do it anymore. And they just need that downtime. We see that all day, every day, the poor kids and what's developmentally appropriate for them with what they have going on and doing two hours of work after a full day is just, they need to be kids too. Yes, right. And then you throw auditory training on, visual training on there. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. It is a lot. So sometimes you do have to kind of scaffold things, you know, so that they're not overwhelmed with all of those activities. I mean, it's my least favorite question to be asked about educational therapy is like, how long will it take? And I'm like, I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm curious sort of in your estimation, how long is a learner going to be doing those exercises before they've reached whatever we define mastery as in this instance? So a lot depends on their initial score. So if it's more mild, then we're probably looking at three to six months. Okay. If it's more moderate-ish, then you're probably looking at, you know, six months, maybe a year. Mm -hmm. When the scores are more severe, 
oftentimes for those kids, it's not just an auditory processing problem. And most times it isn't. Most times there are other things going on. So then you just have to step back and go, okay, what else is going on? And do we have other pieces that may be contributing to the difficulties? So that can look like a speech and language problem as well. So then maybe we have to incorporate that. Is there a dyslexia piece going on? And then that's another piece of the puzzle. But typically I would say, six months to a year for the more significant. I happen to see a lot of kids who are on the spectrum. They have to be able to do my tests, but as long as they can do my tests, I love seeing that population because the differences that can seem so incremental are huge when it comes to being able to have a kid on the spectrum maybe go from one level to the next. So those kiddos will sometimes take longer to do the auditory training. So we may see some nice big improvements in that first six months. Then we have kind of a bit of a plateau over the next six, but then we start to see some growth again after that. So it's kind of very incremental, but the success stories that I've had with kids on the spectrum who've gone from, you know, really difficulty just communicating and being able to sit and follow instructions to now where they can just, I mean, it's having conversations with people and it's so exciting. It's really, really rewarding. Mm. So long answer to what is anywhere from three months to a year, but can go longer depending upon if you have comorbidities. And is this daily training three times a week? Or does that also depend? Yeah, it depends on the severity. Typically, though, I like to hit things hard right out of the gate. So five days a week and depends on the age, 15, well, probably if I'm going to have them do everything, we're looking at 20 to 25 minutes for younger kids, maybe 35 minutes for kids nine or eight and older. Right. Yeah. But for some families, that's just not manageable. You know, for some families to go five days a week on that is just really hard. So then we maybe back it down a little bit, just takes longer, but we drop it down to three days a week. The one caveat that I will share is I find teenagers do not love this. And so when I'm working with a teenager, I really, really get their buy-in. They have to 100% want to do this because if they don't, it just leads to such just battle back and forth between teen and parent. And it's just not a fun experience. And then they often don't finish the training either. So for teenagers, I really make sure that they're fully, fully on board. Similar to us. We have to have them on board. Otherwise, it's just, Mm -hmm. that's teenagers for you. I get it. And they often also don't see the problem. Yeah. Until sometimes they're juniors or seniors. And then they start to realize, oh, for me to go to the next level, I really do need to do something maybe. But, you know, middle school aged and the, oh, it's very hard. Eight to 10th grade. I feel like very hard. (laughs) You know, they don't want to look different. They don't think there's a problem. And it's just, it's hard. It's a problem for everybody else interacting with them too. What's the most common question you get from parents? Oh, that's a good question. The majority of the families that I see are referred by other professionals. So, you know, the psychologist that's done a psychoeducational assessment on them or the educational therapist that's been working with them and is just not seeing the progress or the speech language pathologist who's not seeing the progress, occupational therapists who do tend to see some problems as well, or vision therapists who are developmental optometrists, I guess, who also realize the connection. So I typically will 
get referrals that way. But what happens is the parents haven't been really told what to do or what to ask for, what to, they're just told, give her a call. You got to get this done. So I think what I'll just share is the biggest question I get is they don't know why they're coming to me. And so for me to be able to explain to them what I do and why I'm doing it, I think is the, is the big piece because otherwise, you know, they walk in going, I don't know why I'm here. Yeah, fair enough. But I think part of that is because a lot of people don't understand enough to be able to give the language. Right. I mean, I know from my own experiences and I know when I'm seeing kids and I I recognize something because we can't diagnose, but I recognize something that leads me to make the referral. A lot of times too, it's getting the parents buy into just please call, just please call, just please call. Right. So that makes sense. But I think understanding a little bit more. It's not just school. It can really affect a lot. If you can do something about it, absolutely do something about it. Yes, 100%. From a parent's perspective, understanding that going back to that, it's not just about how he hears because it's really about what the brain does with what that child hears. And so that can be contributing to the educational impact. And also understanding that if there is a problem, if we do some auditory training, that in turn is going to help the education. It's going to make what you guys do more efficient and more effective. So it comes full circle. And I wish there was a better team approach because I think that is one of the pieces that's lacking a bit is that sometimes our professions don't really communicate with one another. So it's that ability to kind of come together as a team and understand how one thing impacts the other. For a lot of the times when I'm working with people who are working directly with the child, it's sometimes your gut, you know, as a professional and as a parent going, "Mm, something doesn't seem right here, you know, or it's sometimes that lack of progress. You know, we've been working on this and working on this and we're still not getting where we need to get. So something is impeding that. And I think that's the important piece to kind of get across to parents is that we're spending a lot of time doing this educational piece, but it's not as effective as it could be if there's something else. Because the auditory processing and the vision processing are very foundational. Right. So if you don't build those foundational bricks and you don't get them where they need to be, you're going to have a little bit of a harder time doing the other pieces as well. Now, let me ask you about people who are able to diagnose. Because some neuropsych testing or you know clinical psych testing, some people do those tests but not everybody does those tests. So should you always go to an audiologist? What are your professional thoughts on all of that? So if you're going like through a neuropsych or a psychoeducational assessment, they don't actually do the diagnosis. If you'll notice like on the diagnostic impressions, they're going to ask for confirmation by an audiologist. Yes. Some psychologists will do some screening tools that are very targeted to auditory processing. So they might do the scan three or they might do the DTSP, even processing speed, you know, problems with processing speed or working memory problems, or if they give some sort of a test that looks at listening comprehension, you know, that there's some problems there or some of the tests that look at phonological skills. So typically when a psychologist knows a lot about auditory processing, they're going to take what's in their battery and go, "Mm, I think we have a problem. Let's refer to the audiologist. Yeah. Conversely though, if they don't see those issues, then there's really no reason to refer to the audiologist. So I think it really does come down to what they see in their battery. And then also education, you know, knowing what to look for, knowing when to refer. 
Yeah. I mean, on a personal note, I passed the screener, but didn't pass the test. Yeah. So the screener on the scan three is not what I would do. The psychologists that use the scan three are actually providing the diagnostic tests. The screener is way too easy. Yeah. But I will share with you the challenge there, and it depends on who's giving it, but sometimes you'll see this in a school district. You know, you can give a screener and then they say they don't have an auditory processing disorder. And then the parent, the patient walks away going, oh, I don't have it. It was ruled out. Well, no, no, you got the easiest test in the world. Didn't even look at all of the areas. It just looked at very targeted areas. And now you walk away thinking this isn't a problem. And I think this is a big, big, big thing that comes up with a lot of clients, actually, and a lot of parents. And I understand. Yeah. But with personal experience, I can clearly say that I passed the screener just fine. But then when the test got hard, I could not do it. And I'll just share when we do an actual battery, those tests aren't that hard. I'm going to give you way harder ones. Oh my goodness. Because those were so hard. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm up for it. I'll report back everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Dr. Brown, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Well, they can check out my website. It is auditoryprocessingctr.com. And you have offices in several places, right? Right now, primarily, I'm working from my Woodland Hills office. That is just because I can keep everybody safe during COVID. And my Santa Barbara office. I have a Pasadena office, but I'm not currently in that location. Got it. Okay. So people can find you there. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Braun, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. You and Steph are going to continue the conversation on Patreon, but I know that this has been a really dynamic and interesting conversation that we've had today that I will for sure go back and listen to. So much to learn. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Well, thank you, Rachel. I was really fun. Will you say our signature sign off, which is have a great week, Smarties? Have a great week, Smarties. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. You're such a good sport. (laughs) 